All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would illuminate our thinking, enlighten the eyes of our soul to the truth of your word, that as we study your word, we may be encouraged, our faith strengthened, our understanding of your plan of salvation expanded, that we may be reminded of the complexity of the sin problem and the multifaceted complexity of what took place on the cross, that it provided everything and more for our salvation, and that all that is needed to be saved is to trust in Christ, to believe alone, not believe plus works, but only believe in Christ alone for our salvation. What a fantastic plan you have given us, and it took so long to work it out. Help us as we understand the dynamics, the prophecies, the types of Christ, that our faith may be strengthened and we may understand the plan of salvation and be even more prepared to witness to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Matthew, going through the stages of the crucifixion, stages of the crucifixion that began with Jesus being led out from the praetorium where he had uh, been found guilty and the death sentence passed by Pilate in the sixth trial, the third uh, trial by the Romans, the second trial by Pilate, as described in uh, numerous passages. That is the first stage. The, sec- the last stage is when they seal the tomb. What we're doing here, we came to the 25th stage, and we're pausing a minute to reflect upon the significance of Christ's death. Last week we looked at prophecies and types. Today we're going to look at more significant types of Christ. A type is a shadow. It is a picture that is portrayed in either an object or an event or a person that is designed under the sovereignty of God to depict something about the work, the person, or the work of Christ on the cross. And so we're going to look at some of those. Just by way of review, we've seen in the first five stages the procession of Jesus from the praetorium to Golgotha before he was crucified. Then they crucified him, and we looked at the first three hours where the wrath of man, the the mocking, the insults, the ridicule that that was hurled at our Lord as he hung on the cross. 
And then we looked at the second three hours when sin was paid for, the spiritual death of Christ on the cross when God the Father covered uh, the land with darkness so that his intense suffering could not be seen. And when our Lord cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that the Trinity was breached, but because in his humanity Jesus is being judicially uh, condemned and judged for our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. It is during those three hours he pays the penalty when it was finished, as the Apostle John said. Jesus said it is finished, a term that means paid in full, an economic term written on bills to indicate that the bill was paid in full, the debt was canceled, there was nothing else needed to fulfill the payment. And that is the second three hours. It was after that that Jesus died physically on the cross. So there's a spiritual death on the cross and there is a physical death on the cross. And at that point, we begin this interlude looking at prophecy and types of the Messiah's death to understand what happened on the cross and why it is significant. And to do that, we don't start with the Gospels. We don't start with the major prophets in the Old Testament. We start by going back to uh, the beginning of sin in Genesis chapter 3 and looking at God's provision for the sin problem and to, and the pictures that God gave from Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament so that when the Messiah came, people should be prepared. They should be able to recognize him for who he was and understand why he came and what he was to do. Now, though many rejected him, there were many who accepted him. There were those like Simeon and uh, Hannah at the temple when uh, his parents brought him to dedicate him in the temple who understood exactly who that infant was and why he had come. And they praised God for that provision of a Messiah. It, w- it was not an accident. Galatians 4.4 4 says that it was in the fullness of times that uh, Jesus came forth. In other words, God waited 4,000 years before providing the Savior. He waited for a reason. There's a preparation that is taking place. And so what we began to look at last time was three particular incidences that are described by John uh, that relate to a fulfillment of types or pictures or prophecies in the Old Testament. There is the phrase that John the Baptist used when Jesus came down, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I talked about why that was significant and that that related to the Passover event in the Old Testament. And we talked about that and the presentation of the Lamb, his observation and testing to make sure he was without spot or blemish, a picture of the fact that the Savior must be without sin, and then his his death and the application of the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts and lintel of the house, and then God would pass over and not take the life of the firstborn. In John 3.14, we saw the picture of the brazen serpent who was lifted up 
to, to heal those who had been come under God's judgment for their uh, belly aching and for their griping against God for the lack of uh, tasty food. And God sent these fiery serpents among them. And so the solution was to, for Moses to make one to elevate it on a post and that if people simply looked at it, they would be healed. Looking at the Savior in faith and trusting that he can do what he promised to do is the essence of salvation. It's not what we do, it's what we believe. That is the issue in the Gospel of John, and that's also depicted by Jesus' statement that he is the living bread which came down from heaven. Eating and drinking, as we portray in the Lord's table, is a picture of accepting something as our own, taking it into our life. Another picture of the idea of believing or trusting in Christ as Savior. And so today I want to look at four important Old Testament pictures that will help us understand the significant things that happened on the cross. That's what we will begin next time in terms of understanding what Christ did. The concept of substitution, the concept of redemption, the concept of forgiveness, uh, sometimes the word is used expiation, that is the canceling of a debt, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of the of propitiation or the satisfaction of the Father. Those key doctrines, those terms that are used to describe the benefits of Christ's death in the New Testament are pictured in the Old Testament. And I don't think we can fully grasp what some of these abstract ideas are apart from those pictures that God gave us in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at those this morning. That his sacrificial death was portrayed in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tremendous picture of Christ. You have the brazen altar and the laver outside the Holy of Holies, which depict aspects of Christ's death that can only be accomplished by Christ's death. And the, and the tabernacle, we won't go into this part of it, but inside the Holy of Holies, you have uh, three pieces of furniture in the holy place, the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense that depict aspects of Christ's ministry for the believer, that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of the world, and that he is our mediator, our intercessor with God, pictured by the altar of incense. And then inside the innermost area, the Holy of Holies, is where the Ark of the Covenant is located, and that comes back to what we will see depicted uh, also in the importance of Christ's death. That's <clears throat> then we have the blood sacrifices, the Levitical offerings that are defined in Leviticus chapters 1 through 6. Then we have Yom Kippur. This is when the Ark of the Covenant comes into significance, where cleansing of sin, forgiveness is depicted through that ritual that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16 this morning. And then the fourth significant image that we find in the Old Testament is that of the kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel, and it refers to the fact that that a person who was a slave 
could be redeemed by a kinsman and set free. And that is the picture that we have of Jesus Christ. He becomes a human being, thus a kinsman, and therefore he can pay the redemption price so that we can be set free from the penalty of sin. So we'll begin with the first element, that is Christ's sacrificial death that is portrayed in the tabernacle itself, the brazen altar, uh, the laver. The Hebrew term for the uh, tabernacle is a mishkan, mishkan. What consonants do you hear there? You hear the M, you hear the SH, you hear the K and the N. Now, the root word there is S-H-K-N, shekan, or what we think of usually shekinah. It is a Hebrew word for the, for a dwelling place. And you convert a verb to a noun in Hebrew by simply adding a, uh, an M at the beginning. So shekan means to dwell someplace. So mishkan says the dwelling place. It is the dwelling place of God. And this is a picture of the outside. Some of you who went with me to Israel in 2014 got to visit, and I have some pictures uh, of that place, the tabernacle in the wilderness, which had not been uh, put, had been there years ago, but they had taken it down and they put it back up a couple of, uh, several years ago. So we were able to go through that and walk through that. Those who are going on the Israel trip this year on the Petra extension, when we'll come back through the Negev, we'll get an opportunity to go there, and it's just a fantastic, fantastic full-scale model of the tabernacle. You can walk around and see all the different components, and the docents there are very well-trained, and they have uh, excellent material. They have a website, and they have uh, they really do a great, uh, great job. So the emphasis in the Mishkan is that God dwells between the cherubs the, in the Holy of Holies, Everything surrounding it has something to do with coming into the presence of God. There is only one entry. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the entry depicts Jesus as the only way to God. Then to come into his presence, the first piece of furniture you see is the brazen altar, and it is there that a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, usually a burnt offering, is made. The next piece of furniture in the outer courtyard is the laver. The laver depicts the importance of cleansing. So those are the first two that we're looking at because in order to enter into the presence of God, there must be a be a sacrifice. That's the brazen altar pictures that and a death. And ultimate cleansing is also through based on the death of Christ. As 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. I always like this picture of the tabernacle at night with the pillar of fire above the Ark of the Covenant where you can see what this must, some image of what this must have been like with all of the millions of Israelites camped according to tribe and specific revealed order around the Mishkan. So here we have the altar, the brazen altar, and this is one depiction of it. Here is a picture from the tabernacle of the wilderness. You can see the 
uh, tabernacle with the covering of various animal hides. And here is the brazen altar, and here is the uh, laver. So we have the brazen altar. There would usually be, this looks like a ramp that goes up, or is a ramp that goes up so that the sacrifices could be laid upon the grate. And in the burnt offering, all would be burned up and go to the Lord. Uh, the passages for the brazen altar are in um, Exodus 27, 1 through 8, also 38, 1 through 7, and Hebrews 13, 9 through 16. The description is given in Ezekiel, I mean Exodus 27, and you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. A cubit was approximately 18 inches. There's different, uh, different cubits that were used, but that's, that'll give you a basic estimate of the size of the, of the altar. You shall make it with horns on the four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So it's made from acacia wood and bronze. Then there's descriptions in verses 3 and 4 of the various uh, tools that went along with it, the pails for removing the ashes, shovels and basins, forks and fire pans. You shall make all utensils of bronze because it withstands the heat. You shall make for it a grating of uh, grating of network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four rings, bron- uh, bronze rings at its four corners. Notice how God is detail oriented here. He doesn't just give them an abstract concept: go build a, a, an altar that's square. He is very specific how this could be constructed. Then uh, verses five and six talks about a ledge under the altar so that the net will reach up halfway of the altar and further gives description of how it should be carried, the poles, the rings that were there, and that is described in the following verses. All of this is to teach something about Christ. The acacia wood. Acacia wood is an extremely hard and dense wood. It is almost impermeable. It will not rot. It will not be, uh, the insects will not be able to penetrate it. Uh, It is going to survive. It is a picture of the humanity of Christ that was without without sin. Emphasizes his sinless nature as described in Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 7.26. It is united with the four horns. They are all to be of one piece. The horns uh, were used to bind the sacrifice to the altar. They were also to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And so the horns and the altar all together point to the death of the sacrifice and ultimately picture the death of the Messiah, that he would ha- that that he would have to die in order to make a payment for sin, and so what underlies all of this as we talk about this is that idea of substitution that I'll talk about next time. From the beginning of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, the first being when God killed the animals to make the animal skins, the clothing for Adam and Eve in the garden. You have that initial sacrifice, and then through progressive revelation, more and more is described. You have 
the first mention of sacrifice in Genesis 3, and then the next sacrifice that's mentioned is in Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord, but but Cain's offering was not accepted because it was the benefit or the product of his own works and producing the fruit of the ground. But Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because he followed God's instructions and brought an animal sacrifice. You see the expansion of the idea of sacrifices and its importance with the patriarchs. One of the first things that, not the first thing that Abraham did when he came into the promised land, when he came to Shechem, was to set up an altar. And then he set up another altar uh, between Bethel and Ai on the road south uh, towards the, uh, and he was in the hill country of Samaria, but as he was moving south to observe the land that God had promised him. And then he built another altar at Hebron. And so all of this is a description of the centrality of the the altar and the sacrifice as the way in which we come to God, the only way in which we come to God. Isaac built an altar at Beersheba. Jacob built an altar at Bethel. And also at Shechem in in 33.20. And it is believed that he rebuilt the altar that Abraham had originally built. It's, there's a history there. And in the 4th century A.D., a Byzantine church was built on that location between Bethel and Ai that's just about uh, three or 400 yards off of the highway, and that has been excavated, and the mosaics indicate that there was a recognition that this was that site. And, I mean, there's nothing that I've seen over in Israel more thrilling than to be at that site. And you know that you're you're at least within 50 or 100 yards or so of where Abraham and Sarah cap, camped out and where he built that altar. And it just shows that the Scripture is not just some fairy tale story that happened in some country far away that you never heard of, but it has a solid historical geographical uh, basis. And so you see the development of these sacrifices. Now, the important thing to recognize with the brazen altar is that it speaks of the need of a sacrificial payment for sin. It is a substitutionary payment, and it is necessary in order to enter into the presence of God, to worship God, and to serve God. There must be a solution, a payment for the sin penalty. Now, the next thing that speaks of this death of Christ in the tabernacle is the laver, the laver. The laver primarily emphasizes cleansing that must take place before the priest goes into the Holy of Holies. We have studied that uh, many, many times. But at its foundation is the idea that a death has been accomplished. This whole concept of cleansing and that word just runs through all of these different sacrifices. And the word that we translate atonement, that, that English word atonement, actually was coined 
by early Anglo-Saxons as a way of describing the totality of what took place in the death of Christ. It was a compound word from at one meant. And so the idea that early scholars thought of when they were learning Hebrew that the word kafar for for atonement was a word for covering. There's actually two uh, homophones in Hebrew, that is, words that are spelled the same but have different meanings. And kafar is one of those. There's the pitch that Noah used to cover and seal the ark to waterproof it. And that covering is one word, but that's not the meaning here. In fact, the rabbis who translated the Septuagint into, into Greek in the 2nd third, and 3rd third centuries uh, B.C., frequently translated a t- kafar with the Greek word katharizo. Katharizo means to cleanse. That's the word that we have in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he will cleanse us, katharizo, from all unrighteousness. But that concept of cleansing not only applies to the ongoing experience of the believer after salvation, but it applies to the initial results when he is saved. He is cleansed positionally from all sin. And so the cleansing at the laver, the picture of the water and water uh, uh, washing away sin, is used as a metaphor and picture of that initial uh, forgiveness and cleansing that takes place positionally when we trust in Christ as Savior. The labor is described in Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse, verses 17 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a labor of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting, at meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. And then it goes on to describe how on a regular basis when Aaron and his sons would go in, they would have to wash their hands and their feet. When they're initially inaugurated into the priesthood, they would wash their whole body. That's positional uh, cleansing. And then each time after that, they would only have to wash their hands and their feet. That is experiential cleansing. But a failure to do that carried with it the death penalty in Exodus 30, verse 21, because you, uh, unholy, unsanctified human beings cannot enter into the presence of a holy God on their own terms. And this is what happens uh, as we were, as I was reading at the beginning of Leviticus 16, we're told in verse 1 that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord. What happened there? What happened was Nadab and Abihu brought their own concept of uh, of fire to the Lord, not according to the specifications of Scripture. We just can't come into the presence of God on any basis. We can't do it because this seems right to us. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. We can't come up with our own concept. Well, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel closer to God. 
That's inadequate. We have to do exactly what God prescribed to do. And Aaron had two sons. They did it their way, and they were immediately executed by God. And Aaron was warned that if he even hinted at grief, if he even began to tear up, that God would take his life as well. Sounds harsh, but God's teaching a principle, and that is that sin separates man from God, and the only solution is his solution, and anything else destroys the possibility of eternal life because we have, we're making it up as we go along. So here's a close-up of the labor in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So those are the two key elements. We'll get to the Ark of the Covenant uh, when we talk about uh, Yom Kippur. Those are the two key elements in the tabernacle. Then we have the blood sacrifices. This is a second picture, the blood sacrifices in Leviticus, uh, described in Leviticus 1, 1 through 6, 7. There are several sacrifices that are listed there. You have the grain offering, you have the peace offering. Those are not blood sacrifices. The focus here is on the blood sacrifices because it's the shedding of blood that pictures death. That is an idiom in Hebrew for death. And you go back to Genesis 9, uh, 6 and 7 when uh, God is giving the covenant to Noah and he says, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So shedding of blood is an idiom for being killed, uh, for taking someone's life and in, in a violent manner. And so these are blood sacrifices, and it's the shedding of blood, which really means the death of the sacrifice. That is what is related to the payment of the sin penalty. Here's a chart of the uh, five sacrifices mentioned there. The first one, the burnt offering, which is an ola in the Hebrew, that means to go up, and it refers to the fact that everything is burnt and consumed by the fire on the, on the uh, brazen altar, and everything goes up into, uh, into smoke and goes up as an offering before God. It is sometimes referred to as a holocaust offering because that's the root meaning of that term. That is why there is great debate that still exists today, um, even in the Jewish community, that holocaust is not the appropriate term to use to describe the holocaust events of World War II because it wasn't an, the debate is it wasn't an offering to God. It was something much worse. That is why the Hebrew term is not related to that. It is the word Shoah, which refers to a catastrophe. So I think that probably is a better term for it. The burnt offering was a Holocaust offering. Everything is burned up. Everything is consumed and is a picture of substitutionary judgment. It is a picture of payment for sin. The second and third offerings in the chart do not relate. The fourth is the sin offering, which depicts forgiveness and purification for unintentional sin. The fifth is the guilt offering, or uh, which is also for forgiveness, but it pictures purification for 
specific sins. And so the thing that comes across in these offerings is that they are substitutionary in nature, that it is the death of an animal. So death is necessary for there to be uh, to be sin. Uh, the burnt offering is consumed completely in the fire. Everything goes up. Every, the, the, the worshiper has nothing for himself, indicating that it is total. The offering is total. Christ, as Christ completely paid for sin, there's nothing of the of the worshiper that is involved whatsoever. Uh, the sin offering has to do the words that are used here primarily chata, which means to miss the mark, and it is a payment for sin. And we're reminded of Hebrews 9.22 that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. That means death. It's not. It, it's what the blood pictures that's important. It's not the blood itself. It's a picture of death. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sin. So what we see in the tabernacle is this picture of, of, of death, that death must be paid for. We see that in the um, brazen altar. We see it with the labor. And then uh, we see it in the sacrifices that were made on the uh, brazen altar, that without the, the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So there, the blood of bulls and goats, a writer of Hebrews says, could not take away sin. They were limited. They were ritual only. They depicted something. It was only when a perfect sacrifice of infinite value could come and pay the penalty that that would be finished. And that is what happened at the cross. As a writer of Hebrews says, after that, there is no more sacrifice. That is the final sacrifice. It is the complete sacrifice that took away, took away sin. And then we have a picture also of the red heifer offering. The red heifer, they would look for a heifer that was to be, be without defect or blemish, not even a white hair, uh, and they would take that heifer and then they would burn it as a complete burnt offering and then the ashes of that were taken in order to purify the temple. That was the main picture in the red heifer offering was to depict uh, purification. It was a sin offering, uh, but it was not. This is described in Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 22, and that it also indicates that, that there has to be a death in order for there to be purification from sin. So we've looked at the furniture in the outer courtyard in the tabernacle. We've looked at the blood sacrifices, all of which pictures the necessity of a substitutionary death. And then third, we come to Yom Kippur, what transpired on the Day of Atonement. The focal point on Yom Kippur is on these two goats that are taken uh, for the high priest. To one will be sacrificed, and one is let go into the um, into the wilderness. And so, when we look at Leviticus. Uh, Chapter 
16, the, the, ultimately the application of the blood is on the Ark of the Covenant. This is a picture. We have a model of the, uh, of the whole tabernacle on the furniture that's up in the front part of the other room. I don't think it's set out right now. But this is a picture of their design of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. You have two cherubs representing the holiness of God. The mercy seat is the lid called the kephoret. And underneath, inside the box, was a, the broken law, which indicates the sinfulness of man. And on the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest would sprinkle the blood first of the bull that was sacrificed for him and for his family, for the priests, and then the sacrifice of the, of the goats. It's located inside the Holy of Holies. This is a depiction that, uh, artistic rendering that the, uh, comes out of Logos Bible software. They have two large, this was from the temple, uh, two large cherubim in the tabernacle. They did not have the two large cherubim. They just had the ark inside the Holy of Holies. And then outside you had the table of showbread, the golden menorahs, and the altar of incense. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the veil, and then he would uh, splatter the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So the center ritual is that he would take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he's at the entryway. So he's observable from those who are outside. And then he would cast lots for the two goats. One is going to survive. One is going to die. The one who would survive is a scapegoat, but he would not survive with any of his uh, previous flock. He would be taken far into the wilderness. So the description is in verse 9 that he would take the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. So we go back to what I talked about in the last point. We have a sin offering that's designed to teach uh, purification, a purification for uh, unintentional sins. And this goat is going to be sacrificed and he makes atonement, that is, he makes cleansing. This is a sacrifice for the nation that will get them through to the next day of atonement. It's temporary. Every year it would have to be repeated, unlike the sacrifice of Christ. And then the other is going to be the scapegoat. He will put, place his hand on that goat and recite the sins of the nation, and then that goat would be taken far, far away, deep into the wilderness so that it could never find its way back. And that is a picture of our forgiveness. God completely removes our sin from us. He doesn't bring it up later on. He doesn't bring it back. It is paid for. It is taken away, and God uh, forgets it. This is then described in verses 15 and 16. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, which means he sprinkles it seven times before the uh, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, and this is a picture of God's satisfaction with the sacrifice. The cherubim who are associated with God's justice and righteousness, his holiness, look down, and they see that 
there is this blood that cover the death that covers it pays the penalty for the broken sin the broken tablets and it is satisfied the word that is used there in the greek to translate kephiret the mercy seat is picked up in the new testament hilasterion and is used to depict God's satisfaction, what we call the doctrine of propitiation. You really can't understand propitiation if you don't understand what happens on the Day of Atonement. That is the picture. A death must take place. And so then in verse 16 we read, So he shall make atonement for the holy place or cleansing because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their uh, transgressions for all their sins, and he shall do so for the tabernacle of meeting. And so you have the one goat that is sacrificed and blood put on the altar, I mean on the Ark of the Covenant, and then you have the scapegoat who was taken out into the wilderness, a picture of our cleansing and the picture of forgiveness. So these are the first three. They all emphasize the necessity of death in order for the sin problem to be taken care of. And then the fourth is the kinsman redeemer. That picture is described in Leviticus 25, 47 to 49. It is depicted in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth revolves around this understanding of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. But this is the foundation passage for it in Leviticus 25, 47 to 49. Now, if a sojourner, that would be a uh, resident alien, the word for an immigrant, someone who is not an Israelite, but is someone who is legally living within the land and is a resident alien, a Gentile. If a sojourner or stranger, that would be just a more temporary uh, alien or immigrant, uh, close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family. This is what would happen. You, you had a, you had the, um, so, uh, the idea of an indentured servant where if you, you became so poor because of your bad money management or some crisis or something else, then you could sell yourself as a slave, but it's not lifelong slavery. It was temporary. If you wanted it to be lifeline, uh, lifelong, you could do that. But it was temporary, and you would be released from that on the sabbatical year, every uh, every seventh year. So it was a way out. There was always that, not anything like the slavery that we had uh, in, in the United States. So this is a, uh, a way to indenture himself to pay off his debt. And in verse 48, there's another way to gain that freedom. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. That's ga'al. That's the Hebrew word for redemption, the payment of a price. One of his brothers may redeem him. So he is to be purchased by a blood relative. Jesus becomes our blood relative by entering into the human race. We all come from Adam, excuse me, we all come from Noah. We all come from Adam, but that funnel narrows with the uh, family of Noah because they're the only ones who survive. So we all trace back to 
one of Noah's three sons. So we're all basically cousins. We're all part of the same gene pool. We're all related. And so the idea of Jesus entering in as a man is so that he can pay the penalty for our sin as the kinsman redeemer. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. If he is able, he may even redeem himself. But the goel is the picture of the kinsman redeemer, which is fulfilled in Christ. He pays the price to redeem us. What's the price? The price is death. This is what we see again and again in the Old Testament, that there's the necessity of a substitutionary death in order to pay the penalty for the human race. Nothing else can do it. Good works can't do it. Joining a church can't do it. Repentance can't do it. Uh, emotion can't do it. Nothing can do it except the payment of the sin penalty, the redemption price. And that is why when we come to realize our need for salvation, it is based on simply faith alone in Christ alone. No works are involved whatsoever. In fact, works taint the transaction and destroy it. All that we need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect upon the progress, progress of revelation as we understand the importance of a sacrifice, the way in which the necessity of the death of the Savior is portrayed throughout the Old Testament to prepare the Israelites, to prepare the Jews for being able to recognize the Savior when he came, and to give us confidence that Jesus was not some accident of history, wasn't just some uh, good guy that showed up on the scene that is uh, teaching a new way of life, but that this was a planned and prepared and prophesied and promised by you throughout the Old Testament to bring the nation and then the world to understand who exactly Jesus is as our kinsman redeemer, our Savior, who paid the redemption price so that your justice and righteousness were satisfied and propitiated so that the sin problem is paid and the the debt is canceled and we have, as as a race, whether we are all saved or not, everyone has had this forgiveness of sin, the only thing necessary now is to trust in Christ that we might be given new life and new righteousness. Father, we pray anyone listening to this message, anyone who is here who's never recognized that the only thing needed for salvation is trust in you alone, that you would make that clear to them as they hear this message, that Jesus paid it all. And as a result of that, just faith in him alone, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each us, each of us with what we've studied, that our confidence in the gospel, our confidence in Jesus as our Savior would be strengthened, and that we might continue to mature, and especially in our application of the need for evangelism to explain the gospel to those who are not saved. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.